Take your Bibles and open to the book of Philippians. This morning we're going to look at verses 27 through 30. Philippians chapter 1, sorry, verses 27 through 30. I was just going to make you guess. Now previous uh, to these verses, in verses 19 through 26, Paul's main focus seemed to be on what he wrote in verse 21, which says, For me... To live is Christ, but to die is gain. To live is Christ, but to die is gain. Now, to fully understand what he meant by that statement, we need to go back to, as always, the context. When Paul wrote this letter, he wasn't sure what was going to happen to him. In other words, Paul really did not know whether he was going to live or whether he was going to die. As you know, uh, Paul was currently, or when he was writing this letter, he was being held in Rome. He was being held in a rented house, and he was chained to a Roman soldier. Why was that? Because Paul was a faithful man. Paul was faithfully preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, of course, the Jews wanted to kill him for that, But Paul, as a Roman citizen, what did he do? He appealed to Caesar. Okay, He appealed to Caesar. That's why he is there now. And so as he waits for his appeal to be heard, he writes this letter. He wrote some other ones. They're called the prison epistles. But he writes this letter, and he says this. And this is basically me paraphrasing. But he says, look at whatever happens to me, if I am released so I can continue to preach to the lost or If I'm literally executed by Rome, either way, Paul says, I will be delivered. He's literally saying, I can't lose. If I live or I die, I I can't lose. Listen to how he explains himself. Verse 22. So this is one side of the aisle, okay? Verse 22. He says, if I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. So on a positive note, Paul feels if he was to be let go out of his imprisonment, that he would go back to doing what God has called him to do, and that was simply traveling the known world and sharing the gospel to the unsaved. Now, as you can see from his words here in verse 22, he believed that his labor would be fruitful, okay? So, in other words, even though there was opposition, there was persecution, there were and were going to be hardships, he believes that God nonetheless will still work through him, that many more people would profess Christ as their Savior. Well, those were his thoughts if he lived. But what about dying? Well, notice his words at the beginning of verse 23. He says, I am torn between the two. Yes, you heard that correctly. He says, I am torn between the two. He didn't know what he wanted more, death or life. Listen to his short explanation in the rest of verse 23. Notice here that even though he's talking about his death, he once again is positive. He says, I desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is better by far. 
So knowing Paul's current situation, and of course, what has happened to him in the past, most of us know the stories of Paul, you know what, let's be honest, it would be really easy for Paul to say, man, you know what, I'm just beat, man, I'm just beat. How awesome would it be to not have to deal with any more persecution or hardships, resistance, physical suffering, and finally, you know what, just leave this earth and go to be in the glory of heaven. You know, if Paul would have said something like that, I don't think anybody would have blamed him. We all know what Paul went through. But you'll notice that he doesn't mention any of those negative aspects. He says one thing, I desire to depart and be with Christ. It wasn't about dealing with with man's depravity. It wasn't about being fed up with the evil, which certainly he could have said, but it was about being with Christ, which he says is better by far, by far. Think about that for a second. How many of us could say literally right now, I am okay today. I am okay today uh, if, if I was to die. What if I was to die today? Are you okay with that? I mean, I'd be better off anyway. That's what the Bible says. That's what he just says, right? How many of us are okay with that? Because Paul is simply saying, look at man, when my heart stops beating, I'm with Christ. If that was you and me, are we okay with that today? Paul has the greatest mindset, I believe. I mean, as you guys know, Paul could not be more content. While he is here on this earth, he would serve the Lord. Paul would, if you will, finish his race. But Paul had a heavenly anticipation. Death would usher him into the very presence of God. In his mind, no matter what God would allow, whether it would be life or whether it would be death, he couldn't lose. That's a pretty amazing mindset. It's great to know, folks, that we, we too have that promise from 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8. We all know it. It says, to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. What an encouragement, but yet at the very same time, it's a challenge to you and to me. Do you, do you look at your time on this earth as a time to serve the Lord by serving others? That's what Paul was doing, right? Paul wasn't looking at, Paul wasn't saying, man, I just want to retire now. I, got, I, need, I need the next five years to tour the country, right? I want to go on some cruises and I want to do all these different things. That wasn't his mindset. Paul was going to be sharing the gospel. He was going to continue to do what he did. He was serving God by serving others. That's what he did. Do we look at our time on earth as the same way? On the flip side, do we desire to be with the Lord more than remaining on this earth? I mean, Paul says it's better by far. Well, as we move forward now and we go into verses 27 through 30, we're going to see, number one, Paul's optimism, meaning his conviction the Lord will keep him here and he will continue in his ministry. And number two, how he exhorts the church to be steadfast 
to be united in truth, to be unafraid of the opposition, knowing that it is a privilege to be counted worthy to suffer for Christ. Read with me as I begin in verse 27. Paul says, whatever happens, what that means, whatever happens to me, I would like for you to conduct yourselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggles you saw that I had, and you now hear that I still have. Stop right there. So dropping back as we begin here in verse 27, uh, for those of you who have the NIV, it says, whatever happens. First words are whatever happens. Now, those words are not in the original Greek, but they are implied in the text based upon what he is saying. Uh, Notice in verse 27, he simply says, whether I come and see you, right? I'll physically come and see you, or I only hear about you in my absence, okay? I'm just telling you this so you understand. For those of you who have ESV or NAS, you're going, I don't see that. Where Where the heck is that? He's simply saying, whatever happens between those two things, that's all he's trying to say. So it's implied, it's just you won't see it in some of your translations. So whatever takes place is what he's trying to get across. Now, back in verse 27, the main point that Paul is trying to get across is whether I am with you in person or, for that matter, I'm in another country, right, and I only hear about you, either way, He says this, I want you to conduct yourself in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. Don't just try, we see this today, don't just try to act a certain way when I'm around you, right? People do that to me sometimes. Oh, sorry, pastor, you know, all that kind of stuff. You, You act a certain way nonetheless, right? Paul says, whether I'm with you or whether I'm not there, it doesn't matter, I want you to conduct yourselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. In other words, notice it's not about Paul. It's about the character of the church and how it represents Jesus Christ. And one of the key words he uses here is obviously the word conduct. Now, the word conduct in the Greek can actually be translated in a couple different ways. It could be just to exist, right? It could also mean to behave which we all understand, or maybe for those of you who have the ESV, it says your manner of life, your manner of life. In the Greek, it's actually more of a kind of a political term. It means to live as a citizen, live as a citizen. But the key is the context. And so based on how Paul is using it here, he's saying live as a kingdom citizen, Conduct yourselves as a citizen of heaven. As Paul will say later on in chapter 3, verse 20, he says, our citizenship is in heaven. 
right? Our citizenship is in heaven as we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. So in other words, yes, we all know that we live on this earth right now, temporarily. But ultimately, ultimately, the fact that we have been adopted into the family of God, the fact that we are children of God, our citizenship is in heaven. That is it. We all know the old hymn, right? This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. And there's a lot of truth to that. This is not my home. As far as eternity is concerned, I'm spending this much time on this earth. My citizenship is in heaven. And so he's saying, as a citizen in heaven, behave as someone who carries that title. Titles sometimes make us act a certain way, doesn't it? Right? Stand up straight, your mom always to tell you, right? Don't do this, or make sure you do that. There's certain things you want to you have respect for that. We are citizens of heaven. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, it helps us out a little bit. It says, for he, meaning Christ, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, and he has brought us into the kingdom of the Son that he loves. So here we can actually see the opposing thoughts. For the Christian, he's saying, we are to have a conduct that is diametrically opposed to our prior selves, who we used to be, as we used to be people who lived in the dominion of darkness. Conduct yourself in such a way that it completely opposes who you used to be. Okay? Listen, folks, if, if we act like, if we talk like, if we even dress like, or if we appear to be just like the person we used to live before we knew Christ, we have a problem. I hope we understand that. What you say, what you talk, how you act, it could be how you dress. There's a lot of things. If we do that to be just like the world, we have a problem. We don't like to admit that, but that is reality. We are to be separate from this world. We are to be in this world. We don't have a choice, but we're not to be what? Of this world. We don't do things just because the world does it. We don't use certain language just because the world uses that certain language. I hope not. We shouldn't do anything just because the world does it. In Ephesians uh, chapter 4, verse 1, Paul said, As a prisoner for the Lord... I then urge you to live a life that is worthy of the calling that you have received. I urge you to live a life that is worthy of the calling that you have received. Back here in verse 27, Paul is going to use the very same word he used there in Ephesians, and that is the word worthy. Did you see that? Paul says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. The question, of course, for most of us, what does Paul mean by the word worthy? Well, generally speaking, it's a pretty subjective term, right? And I can ask 100 different people and they can give me 100 different definitions. But here in Scripture, it comes from the root word worthy, comes from the word axios, okay? And it, it simply means of equal weight, 
of equal weight. Or if you want to say, it means to balance the scales, right? You think of equal weight and balancing the scales, we're right here, right? It's the same thing, okay? In other words, one side must correspond to the other, okay? So thinking once again about the scale, who you claim to be and how you live must equal out, okay? Because he's talking about conduct, right? He's talking about conduct. The best way is our daily living must correspond to the fact that we are a child of God. That needs to balance out, right? As Paul says here in verse 27, your conduct must exemplify someone who identifies with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You've heard me say this before over the years, but it, it really just boils down to, a, to this. If you profess to be a Christian, act like it. That's the simplest way, non-theological way that I can say that. If you profess to be a Christian, act like it, live like it, talk like it, respond like it, and on and on and on and on and on. Your position in Christ, remember that, your position in Christ should be equal to your practice in Christ. The scales should be the same. Who you are in Christ, redeemed, forgiven, righteous, right? How is that practically on the other side? Our position and our practice should be pretty equal. The scales should be equal. As Paul wrote in Colossians 3, verses 12 and 13, this is important, as God's chosen people. That's the key. It's what he's saying here. As God's chosen people, in other words, he's saying because of who you are, you're holy, you're dearly loved, but listen to what he says. He says to clothe yourselves, which simply means to put on, to wrap yourself in. Clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. Bear with each other. Forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. He's saying, if, however way you want to look at this, live like that, act like that, treat others like that because you are one of God's chosen people. Or flip it around, fine, you're a chosen person of God. This is how I expect you to, to live, to honor that. Right? You're a new creation. It, he makes it a little easier for you. Gave us his spirit, gave us his word. Live this way. MacArthur puts it this way. He says, the church's greatest testimony before the world is spiritual integrity. When Christians live below the standards of biblical morality and reverence for their Lord, they compromise the full biblical truth concerning the character, the plan, and the will of God. By doing so, they seriously weaken the credibility of the gospel and lessen their impact in the world. Absolutely true. We are the ones on this earth who now represent Christ. We, we are left here on this earth. We represent Christ, right? And that being said, what do people see in us? Do people see something different in us so they're going, yeah, you know what, I... I I can see that change in your life. I can see that Christ made a difference. I can see that he transformed you. That's something that I know I need. I need to be forgiven. And I realize that you're just not some religion. Do they see that? 
Or on the flip side, do they say, I tell you what, when I see your redeemed life, maybe I'll put my trust in your so-called redeemer. Because right now, your redeemer didn't do a very good job if I'm looking at you. Oh yeah, those are tough words, huh? When I see your redeemed life, then I'll put my trust in your redeemer. But those are tough words, but let's be honest, as a non-believer, can you blame people for thinking that? The answer is no, absolutely not. They don't know Christ. That's what they see. What's so special about you? You don't seem to be any different or much different than me. It's very important we think about that. So, in a broad sense, this is Paul's desire for every single Christian out there. It doesn't matter. At all times, no matter the situation. In other words, there should never be a time, there should never be a time for any Christian who's, who, uh, who should not strive for this standard. Okay? Yet here in our text this morning, Paul ties it to four things. Look first at the second half of verse 27. He says, whether I come and I see you or I only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit. And so Paul says, look it, I'm either going to see it myself, right? I'll see it with my own eyes or I'm going to hear about it from other people, right? But he will know that these believers, meaning the church in Philippi, were conducting themselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel if, number one, they are standing firm in one spirit. Now, being in one spirit is to say that they are they're unified. There's, there's unity in thought. There's unity in action. And I may say unity in conviction, you may think of the believers in Acts chapter 4, verse 32. You might remember that text where uh, all the believers there were helping each other. It's like one big community. They were helping each other out. They were selling their property, selling their... Does somebody have a need? We'll meet it, right? Somebody have a prayer request? Let's do what we can. If somebody needs money, we'll fund it. They were all together. They were completely and totally unified. He says in that text, they were of one heart and of one soul. The church. Here in verse 27, he says they should be, listen, standing firm, he says. Standing firm in one spirit. Standing firm means to hold your ground, regardless of the cost. Hold your ground, regardless of the cost. And please know, folks, that standing firm can be addressed in a positive light or a negative light, okay? Simply meaning that uh, you may stand firm for the Lord, right? Or you can also stand firm against the devil. In this context, if you're conducting yourself in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ, it would be both. Standing for the truth, but you're also standing against falsehood. You're standing for righteousness, but you're also standing against sinfulness. See what I'm getting? Not just Paul, folks, but the Lord himself, I'll guarantee you, longs to see this in the church. Longs to see it in the church. Second thing we see here in verse 27 
as evidence of someone who is conducting themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel is they will be, as he says, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. So once again, you'll notice here that we see a unity, don't we? We see a harmony. We see a oneness with believers, a positive relationship with, as one person within the church. There's a positive relationship with everybody as if one person. We see this in the words, it says contending as one man. All of you, he says, I want you to contend as one man. Well, that's harmonizing, isn't it? That's unified. By the way, that's actually one word in the Greek, and it means to contend together. To contend together. A harmonious relationship within the church. And listen, folks, that relationship is strong due to the word that Paul uses here. He uses the word to contend. That word contend means to strive. It means to fight for. Okay? That's a strong adjective. You're fighting for this. You're striving hard. It's it's, It's a mindset of team athletics. We all know team athletics. When you have certain players, you know, pick one, pick a, uh, pick basketball. When you have a certain players on a team who are who are only focused on themselves, well, man, I need to score 20 points and I can win the scoring record. Or if I can get two more blocks, man, I get the I get the blocking, you know, whatever. I get the reward or whatever it may be. But you know when that happens on a team. The team fails because people are focused on themselves. But success is found when a team can work together and they achieve the common objective. Hence the words, fight together. And here in verse 27, he says what they're fighting for, and that is the faith of the gospel. The faith of the gospel. Notice that this is not a subjective faith. It is the faith. That's the definite article, the. It is the Christian faith. Okay? As Homer Kent has stated, in all of Paul's labors, Paul himself has guarded and thus preserved intact the gospel message that has been entrusted to him. Folks, the Apostle Paul never changed it. He never adjusted it to fit the times. It was never compromised because of certain people or certain attitudes or certain cultures. The gospel is the gospel. Matter of fact, if you want to know what Paul thinks about it, go back to Galatians chapter 1, verse 9. Anybody who preaches any other gospel than the one that I preach, let them be what? Anathema. Eternally condemned. Yeah, those are some harsh words. There's one gospel, the gospel, and we've got to fight together to stand for it. Period. I'm not fighting for a denomination. I'm not fighting for some theological construct. The church needs to come together and stand firm on what is the gospel. And by the way, this is expected of us all, not just the pastor. In Jude, Jude only has one chapter, so it's Jude, verse 3. He says, Dear friends, 
Although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share. In other words, Jude says, look, it, here's the reason I really wanted to write to you. I wanted to write to you and talk about the fact that we share in this great salvation. But then he says, I couldn't do it. I felt I had to write you and urge you to contend for the faith which was once and for all delivered to the saints. I, I'm writing to you to tell you, you need to fight, you need to struggle for, there's that word contend, the faith. Folks, there's a time when we have to fight for it. You wouldn't think so in the church, it's the so-called church. We have to stick to the truth, no matter what garbage you get hit with. We stand for the faith, not a faith, not a particular kind of faith. Christianity isn't a mishmash. You've heard me say it before. So many times people think that there's this big, huge box and it's labeled Christianity. And in today's world, people just throw any belief they want right into that box and say, it's still Christianity. I'm like, no, it's not. It is not. You can't change it. You can't just morph it and say, I'm a Christian. Well, this is what Christianity is. Baloney. Together we are to guard what God has entrusted to us. Not interpret it flippantly as it fits our own agenda. We have to defend it, right? That's what, that's what Jude said, defend, contend for the faith. We have to defend it against other faiths, against heretics, against philosophers, even compromisers within the church. Thirdly, Paul says he will know those who conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Look at the very beginning of verse 28. He says they won't be frightened in any way by those who oppose you. They won't be frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Paul wants the church to live courageously for Christ in the midst of opposition, in the midst of persecution. Okay. This is, by the way, what he told Timothy. We all see that part, and I think it's 1 Timothy 1, I think. I could be wrong, but nonetheless. He talks about timidity, right? God did not call us to be timid. Well, Timothy was timid simply because of the persecution that was going on. Nero was in charge. I think it was around 66, I think, 66 AD. Nero's in charge. He's persecuting the daylights out of Christians. Some of them he's roasting over an open fire. So yeah, Timothy's become a little bit timid as to going out and sharing the gospel, <laughs> right? A little bit fearful. And what did Paul say? Stop it. That's why he said that. He didn't just say don't be timid. It's because of what was taking place around him. So whether it's the first century when this was written or whether it's today in the 21st century, there were, there are, and there are going to be people who will oppose you and me. Catch that? There were, there are, and there are going to be people who oppose you and me, who oppose the faith, who oppose what we stand for. And what we stand for is not a political worldview. Most of us here probably agree on our politics, but we never are going to go out and stand for a political worldview. We stand for a biblical worldview. That's what we stand on. 
Paul experienced this personally when he was in Philippi. You can read about that later in Acts chapter 16. But as far as our text is concerned, this does not tell us anyone specifically. It doesn't tell us about any group specifically that we're going to have to be dealing with. And therefore, I feel that Paul left it open uh, purposely because in reality, it really doesn't matter what group it is. Whoever the opposition is, it might be the government. It might be your own family. Some of you probably already experienced that. But the need for unity, the need for courage amongst believers is crucial. He then says in verse, still in verse 28, by standing up to the opposition, by not being frightened, he says, this will be a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God. The fact that Christians, or if you will, the church, was being attacked because of the gospel, because of the faith they stood on and that we, you and I, stand on, doctrinally, morally, was proof that the opponents were and are headed for destruction. The opposition of the church, folks, are the enemies of God. Do you understand that? I don't care what their label is. I don't care what they look like. I don't care what their belief system is. The opposition of the church are the enemies of God. Ultimately, their attacks ultimately their attacks are going to be futile because the church will prevail. Hell will not prevail. We know that, right? Both of these signs are from God. The first will mark out his enemies, the second to mark out his children. You can make it simple and using biblical words, the sheep and the goats. But some are actually not just non-believers, they're the enemies. They're coming after believers. They're against what we stand for. They are the opposition. They're causing persecution and suffering for believers. And this is why we go into the last part here, Paul's fourth mark, the fourth part of the conduct worthy of the gospel of Christ, and that's in verses 29 and 30. He says, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him since you are going through the same struggle you saw that I had, and now you hear that I still have. Folks, when the church stands firm in one spirit, when they contend, fight for, struggle for, as one man for the faith of the gospel, and then stands up to the opposition without being frightened, guess what? There's bound to be persecution. There's bound to be Suffering. People will undergo evil. They will undergo affliction. It's happening already, obviously, not just in the United States, but tremendously overseas. Now, what's interesting here, folks, this is interesting, listen to this, is how Paul phrases this, okay? In verse 29, he says this. He says, not only belief in him, Right? You saw that, right? Not only belief in him, but also suffering for him, listen, is granted to us. Did you see that? Belief in him and suffering for him, he says, is granted to us. You know what that word granted means? Or you know what that word granted is? You know the word charis. What does that mean? Grace or gift. 
We all know that word, hopefully. It means grace or gift. And so he's saying that not only is belief, or if you will, faith, a gift of God, but listen, so is suffering, he says. So is affliction. It's granted to us, he says. It's gifted to us. Graced to us. Belief in suffering. Paul wants this church to know that for the faithful, suffering or whatever form was not an accident. It wasn't divine punishment. But it was actually a sign of God's favor. Because, you know, for many of them, they consider it an honor to suffer for Christ's sake. Let me read two passages from 1 Peter. 1 Peter 4, verses 12 and 13. Peter says, Do not be surprised at the painful trial that you are suffering as though something were strange or something strange was happened to you. Like, what's going on? Why is this happening in my life? He says, But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Those aren't easy words to read, are they? That didn't just apply to the first century people, folks. He says, rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ. 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7. In this you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, you may have to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These, meaning these trials, have come so that your faith, which is of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though it's refined by fire, your faith, he says, may be proved genuine and may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Listen to Paul's thoughts right here in Philippians 3.10. Paul says, Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, and listen, and the fellowship of his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Even if it costs, even if it costs me my life, he says, I want to be like Christ to the point of suffering, and even if it costs me my life. Um, you know, if I'd ask a question right now, and I'm not gonna, most of us wouldn't raise our hand. <laughs> hey, who wants that? Uh, hmm. As you know, folks, Paul did not avoid it, did he? He did not. He accepted it with honor, knowing it connected him with Christ, and it also proved Paul's faithfulness. Listen, folks, if you catch grief from the world, if you are persecuted because of your biblical stance, you know what? You're probably on the right track. Matter of fact, Paul alludes to this in verse 30. He says, when you suffer for the Lord's sake, you're going through the same struggle that I had, he says, and I still have. Back in Acts 16, I mentioned it earlier. Remember, Paul and Silas were in actually Philippi, Right? And they were doing what God had called them to do. They were sharing the gospel. The town didn't like it. So what they do? They stripped them. They beat them. They flogged them. They put them in stocks. Just, I'm just sharing the gospel. Just, just, 
I just have a concern for the eternal destiny of other people. Currently, Paul is incarcerated once again in Rome because he pleaded to Caesar. It's almost like Paul is saying, you know what? Since they don't like me, be prepared because they're probably not going to like you either. Remember what Jesus said? They hated me. Prepare yourself. They're going to hate you also. Folks, there, there are a lot of people who are dealing with grief right now as Christians in this world today. A lot. And we're sitting over here relaxed. But those people, just because they live in another country, they're no different than you and me. Right? They're, they're, our, they're our brothers and sisters in Christ. Believe that. We'll spend eternity with them. But they're going through hell in many ways. I just read this last week. This is from um, India. I mentioned to you uh, not too long ago that India has really changed their ways. India used to be open to whatever. In, in, India is, a, uh, is, is under Hinduism. That's their belief. But they were open to let people live their lives that way. Not anymore. They're, they're going toward uh, uh, Hindu nationalism. Period. Which means the persecution of anybody who's not. Just this week... There was a gentleman named Vijay. He's an elder in a church. I'm not going to tell you where because I'd probably butcher the name. He left Hinduism and he followed Christ because he was healed of tuberculosis. His faith in Christ meant everything to him. And he knew it. And so he, what did he do? He started sharing his faith with everybody. I can't even begin to tell you what Jesus has done for me physically and spiritually. Vijay led his wife and many of his relatives to the Lord, and he didn't stop there. He boldly shared the gospel with the local villages. Eventually, more than 30 Hindu families, 30 Hindu families came to faith in Jesus Christ because of this one dude. As the gospel spread, so did Vijay's evangelistic pursuits. One afternoon, while his wife and children were away, Vijay lay down, took a nap because he was, worked hard in the field. That's what they do. He woke up to find his home engulfed in flames. A group of Hindu extremists had set his house on fire and they fled the scenes hoping to kill him and therefore silence the message that he was spreading. The fire destroyed his house and killed several of his buffalo, his goats, and his cows, which his family is dependent upon for their very livelihood. But he did survive. That's just one little incident this last week in India. There are pastors right now being held in Iran, imprisoned. There are people being held in China right now, imprisoned. There are people in forced labor camps in North Korea. I didn't want to tell you how brutal that's going to have to be with that yahoo at the helm. People in Africa are being murdered senselessly. Just walking into your villages, lighting them on fire, and blasting everybody who runs out of their own house. You're dead. Why? Because I raised my hand and said, who's a Christian? Because I, I, I want to share the gospel with the guy in the next village to let him know that Jesus is real and he can forgive their sins too. Folks, there's, there is horrid persecution all over the world today. Stuff that you and I would go, are you kidding me? Seriously? You know I me, mean, I've mentioned this many times to you, so this probably isn't new. But this is all over our world. But it's just beginning here in our own country. Christians are being persecuted 
in the media. Christians are being persecuted in the courts. What, what this group can get away with, Christians cannot. This group can burn down the entire city, ruin people's lives, destroy their life savings. This group over here, in case you saw this a couple weeks ago, they were praying in front of an abortion clinic. God forbid. They were found guilty and now face up to 10 years in prison. Christians, they showed the picture. They were out singing hymns in front and praying for these young women, encouraging them, please don't go in to the abortion clinic. Somebody said, that's horrible, that's terrible. How dare they do that? They went to a court in the United States, were found guilty, and they may get 10 years in prison for caring about the unborn child and that mother. Did they beat him up, stop him, kidnap him? No, they prayed for him. Welcome to America. Folks, this is the steps that we're, we're headed towards in our country. And if you pay attention, and I don't blame you if you don't, what's going on in our own country, you see the hatred of Christians. You can say whatever you want about certain other things, and you'll get in trouble. Not Christianity. You can blast it. They're all a bunch of wackos. They're all a bunch of religious fanatics. We need to get rid of them, do away with them. I'm tired of this message. I watched an interview the other day. You know who Vody Bakum is? Many of you know who Vody Bakum is. He's being interviewed. I think it was on it's going to be on CNN or MSNBC. The second he began to share the gospel at the very end, hey, we don't want to hear that. That football player recently who gave the glory to God. I don't watch football, by the way, and I don't care about the Super Bowl. But this football player said, hey, I just first want to just thank the Lord God, the Lord Jesus Christ, blah, 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 blah. They ran the entire speech, but they cut off the first part. We don't want to hear about Jesus. Folks, this is the beginnings. This stuff happens all the time. Some of you I know don't pay attention. This is happening. It's coming to our world. Coming to a city near you. I encourage you to be prepared for that time. I encourage you to be, for all of us, to be as strong as they are overseas. Who We can't even hold a candle to the people overseas. Their faithfulness is amazing. It's not about, well, I got my second amendment right. I do, and I love it. But I'm not going to sit around my house shooting up people as they drive by. As a believer in Christ, we're going to have to deal with a lot of garbage. And so I encourage you to prepare yourself. Be strong in the Lord. Go back to things like this because what we hear about in other countries, mark my word, I don't know when it's going to happen in America. It's coming along. It's just coming along little by little. You've heard me, um, I say this all the time, we have these magazines. And listen, folks, <laughs> that's a skinny little magazine. There's not much to that. I want everyone here today, I really would. I don't know how many I have. I want you to take one. Yes, I'm asking you. I can't make you. But I want you to take one. I want you to go home and read it. Read it throughout the week. I mean, once again, it's a skinny little magazine. This isn't a 400-page book. But it'll get you to realize what's going on in other countries. What, it might be talking about a certain person or a certain tribe or a certain pastor of what took place, what happened, what's going on. You don't have to give to Voice of the Martyrs if you don't want to. That's fine. They're not trying just to suck you dry. But I want you guys to read it. I do that as a pastor. It doesn't, it doesn't hurt me or change my life at all if nobody reads it. 
but I want you to because I want people to grow. I want people to learn. That's why I'm here. I'm not here for the money. <laughs> but I want you to learn. I want you to grasp that. I want you to understand. I want you to see what's going on in this world. Because some of you I know don't watch the news, don't pay attention to things. And, I, and like I said, I don't blame you because it's negative. It's constantly negative. So there's all these magazines. I would like every one of you guys to take one. Take it home. It's thin. But get a grasp of what's going on in this world and understand that's coming to a city near you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, God, that um, you have given us strength. But, Lord, we need that strength not just now as we begin the dealings with this in our country, but, Lord, in the future. We don't know when it's coming or when it's going to get worse, but, God, we ask you that whenever that time is, that you would empower each and every person in this room, each and every Christian, to stand firm in Christ. Lord, nobody in this room wants to get shot, killed, raped, imprisoned. But Lord, may we, may we say the words, yes, my trust is in Jesus and Christ alone. Lord, there are many believers, they're no different than us. They just simply live somewhere else around this world who are, who are suffering tremendously. Some just flat out killed. Lord, I think of Leah Sherabu, who simply said, no, I'm not going to deny my faith. And she's been held by Boko Haram now for about three years, and she's been raped multiple times. And actually now has kids because of some of these men. Lord, there are some very faithful people there. Help us to be the same. We're so comfortable here in America, Lord. Um, we need to be stronger in our faith, stronger in your word. Stand strong in the message of the gospel. Lord, may we do that because you saved us, you loved us, you sent Jesus to die for us. We owe our entire eternity to you. I ask all this in Jesus' name.